This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. New Zealand Aged Care Association Interim Chief Executive Catherine Rich has recently criticised Te Whatu Ora for overseeing the closure of aged care beds, which she says is the wrong direction given the tsunami of need coming to New Zealand as the population ages. Catherine joins me now. And Catherine, what prompted you to make those comments? Well, as a newcomer to the aged care sector, I spent a lot of time looking at the statistics and, in fact, Te Whatu Ora's own own uh, demand projections and you don't have to spend too long with the statistics about the numbers of New Zealanders who are going to need aged care by the end of this decade to realise that New Zealand has no plan and so I have made some quite strong statements because I do think it's it's tantamount to negligence to be aware of this the baby boomer bump uh, of aged care demand coming through and New Zealand has been really flat-footed There have been a lot of beds closed in the last year, over a 1,000 beds closed due to underfunding and lack of nurses, and 1,200 beds closed temporarily just because we haven't been able to get enough aged care nurses. And if you look at the numbers of New Zealanders who are going to need aged care by the end of the decade, we'll need at least another 13,200 additional beds just for them, and that's not taking into account what might close. And yet it's very hard to get both officials and political leaders to give this issue any thought. In terms of the beds that have been cut, where have they been cut from? Because even within aged care, there's sort of the very high needs, the hospital level, the dementia and all those kind of things, seemingly more and more popular as more people have these different comorbidities. Where have they come from, these losses? Unfortunately, the major losses have come from what we call standard beds, and those are basic rooms for New Zealanders who rely on solely on the pension. So beds are rooms which become their homes, uh, which they can afford on their pension and they don't have to make any additional payments. Yes, there is some additional building going on, particularly amongst some of the larger corporates who are building retirement villages with care suites attached. But the ones who have closed are the affordable beds. So there's a really disturbing subset to this issue in that for those New Zealanders who might not be able to sell their own home to pay for their care, or they may have never had a water home in their life, or they're just on that pension, uh, that the, the, the opportunity to find spaces is going to become very, very dire. So what that suggests is that aged care in itself is not a viable business model. At the moment, aged care as a standalone operation is not viable for many, many operators. Uh, We've just done a survey which shows that most are making a loss of some kind. The reason for this is that the Te Whata Ora contract hasn't kept pace with inflation. So post-COVID, when there was an increase in in food costs, building costs, and other major costs of providing care, the bed day rates haven't kept kept up with that. Um, One of the things that I've found disturbing is that the aged care contracts um, let by governments, successive governments, 
really bear no relation to the full cost of care. And so for many aged care providers, the full costs of caring for those they have in their care uh, are not covered. And that's why we're seeing closures. We're also seeing some providers trying to sell their businesses and they can't as a going concern because the cash flows are so poor. And really third party endorsement or lack of it you'll find with the banks who are looking at aged care building proposals and saying, we won't lend on that because uh, it doesn't make any money, it's too much of a risk. So unless you're cross-subsidising through a retirement village development, which is, in essence, a property development play, um, it's very hard to build care suites. The big six are continuing to build a number of beds, but they are premium rooms for which New Zealanders will pay additional money uh, and get a, a higher standard. But they're only building sufficient to be able to make that that uh, continuum of care marketing claim. So instead of building a 120 bed facility that what they might have built five, 10 years ago, they're building suites with 10 to 14 beds suitable for the residents only, not the wider community. So that's why it's going to get very difficult for families who often wait for um, until an incident like a fall or some critical thing happens and they look around and they go, whoa, there's, there's nowhere in the community for my mum or my dad or my grand my grandparents to go. And, you know, the anxiety currently for families right now is nothing compared to what it's going to be like at the end of the decade. I think we're going to look back at 2023 and say the, these were the good times where at least if there was a t- two-year waiting list, you could find a, a space. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, of course, the personnel problem um, in that there's just not enough staff. They can't get the staff to do it. Can you just explain in a way that everyone can understand why um, retirement villages, especially those that are involved in property, can't up the wages of the people that work in their um, aged care units? Yes. A lot of people mistake retirement villages for aged care, and retirement villages are, of course, as, as you already know, the lifestyle living part where people are very active and they're living in a community. So many many of those who go into retirement villages pay an upfront fee as part of buying their villa or room, which contributes to their ultimate aged care costs. And there is a huge amount of cross-subsidisation that already goes on. So the, the, the major retirement villages that have care suites are already subsidising their aged care part you know, to the tune of millions and millions of dollars each year. But you can only trade on that goodwill and commercial um, acceptability for so long. And um, particularly with the funding of nurses, when you're having to fund a ten to up to $30,000 gap between um, what nurses are funded to do by Tafata Aura contracts in aged care and what Tafata Aura pays its own nurses, the, the bridge just becomes too far and so that's why some of the more recent closures have been solely because they have not been able to get registered nurses to be able to work in the facilities because uh, there's a a global um, fierce war for nurse talent. New Zealand's fighting with Australia, Australia's fighting with other countries and that's why um, we have been demanding pay parity for nurses in aged care, because while the latest bump in 
salaries for nurses in the public hospital system was fantastic. Um, it just made the gap between what the aged care nurses get and public hospital nurses get so much greater, and that's had a big impact on recruitment. So you're right, there, there, there can and there is cross-subsidisation already, but you can only trade on that goodwill so far before those larger retirement village property developers say, by all means, I'm going to look after our residents, but in order, if, you know, we're not going to build the large hospitals in the towns to take on the wider community when we're making a loss on every single patient who walks through the door. That's not, um, uh, you know, regardless of whether they're one of our residents or from the local community. And that's what I think is the most upsetting in all of this from a New Zealand Inc. perspective, because we're just not planning to deal with what is a highly predictable demand increase. Catherine, thank you very much for coming in to talk to me and um, all the best with everything. Thank you, Dita. X-Frame is a Kiwi-born startup founded on circular principles and makes reconfigurable, reusable and lightweight flat-pack timber framing. X-Frame won the Commercialisation Impact Award, sponsored by the Medical Assurance Society, at last week's KiwiNet Awards. And founder and CTO Jed Finch joins me now. Hello, thank you for joining us. Now tell us about this award. Yeah, it's um, a, a really, really nice piece of recognition after three or four years of hard work. Um, it basically represents the fact that we've, we're in the market and we're, we're generating good revenues and the, the technology has traction. Now, you have some um, sort of roadblocks to trying to get what you've got on the in the pipeline sort of accepted by the broader construction industry. What are the challenges that you're facing? Yeah, construction's a notoriously conservative sector, so it's fairly slow to innovate, and that's for good reasons. It's an expensive product that you're building, um, and there's a lot of compliance requirements. You need to make sure that building's going to be, you know, stand the test of time and, and suit the customer's needs. So we need to be very um, across our regulation and compliance, um, but it also costs a lot to deploy the product. We have to have a lot of cash in the bank to make sure we can pay for the projects as they come up um, and of course a lot of different buildings require different uh, design specifications which really tests what we do in a new product. Um, I think when you went out to look for money in New Zealand right at the beginning there was also a lot of hesitancy but you found success in Australia. Can you explain the reception there as opposed to the reception here? <laughs> yeah absolutely. So we were picked up from the university by uh, Innovise, they're a, a commercial incubator out of South Australia and they had a mandate to commercialise uh, circular economy technologies. And when put in front of their investment team, it was a really attractive proposition, uh, construction being a sector where there isn't much innovation, so there's a lot of potential for, for new technologies. Um, and that was viewed a bit differently here, where there's a more risk-adverse nature around construction and, and a, a hesitancy to invest in construction technologies. Is it, though, that there's just more money in Australia? Yeah, that helps. Yeah, there's more <laughs> money flushing around, but also, I think... Um, um, there's a willingness to spend on environmental technologies that are a bit of um, a more longer-term bet. They might require more input at the start to get them going, but the payback has a, has a great potential. Can you tell us about the unique sort of way it's set up there where you don't have direct control over the 
you know, you 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 have a general manager. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's been one of the successes <laughs> of XFrame is the fact that um, I've been able to step purely into the technology and the delivery of a system, which means I can be across the design details and lead a team of architects and, and software developers to really deploy the product. And I don't have to worry about the day-to-day financial operation of the company. We've got someone who's very experienced to do that. They were given equity um, and a team is now formed around them to help run that side of the business. And that division has really worked well in terms of growing X-Frame as a technology and a business at the same time. And you don't mind giving up some of your equity? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's key for me because the more people that I have around me, the more stable and I guess uh, comfortable I feel operating and taking some of the risks that are necessary to get the product out there. This product is, is kind of world leading, so where are you taking it to in the world and what kind of pitch are you giving them? Yeah, the fact that um, we've taken a, a timber product and turned it into a modular building um, system on this level in terms of interoperability and reuse is, is really unique. Um, we are, are really focusing on the commercial fit out and interior fit out markets because that's an area where things change often um, and there's a mandate to put in more sustainable systems. When we go and talk to new customers, we talk about the, the carbon um, potential of the product, the fact that it's zero carbon up front, it's made from local materials and produced locally. We talk about the fact that it can all be reconfigured at the end of life very easily, like by a facilities management team, so you don't have to get um, specialist builders to come in and do the work. So we really sell that journey of the product and the potential of the product for the organisation on a sustainability level as well as an operational level. So Jed, in five years' time, what would you like to be saying about X-Frame? Yeah. I'd like, obviously, for it to be a, a success story in Australia, New Zealand, the US and Europe. I think that'd be a really good outcome. But more importantly, we want to be stewards of the product. So we want to be engaging with the customers to help them reconfigure it. We want to be following the product and, and monitoring it so it is always being reused or recovered and really help the system do its job in terms of circularity and, and eliminate waste. Jude, thanks so much. Brilliant, thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Christoph Schumacher from Germany this week. So Christoph, you're looking at our election. The countdown is on. Yes, absolutely. And it's always a time. Of course, we are looking forward to what will happen uh, in the new years, but it's also a time to reflect and what has happened in the last uh, few years as well because ultimately if we decide to choose a party we'll want to see how good the incumbent was in order to give us an idea of whether we want to go along again for the same ride or whether we want to change so i think election time is always important um, for looking backwards as well and you've pinpointed the IMF report that's come out recently, doing a bit of a health check of the economy. Yeah, yeah I thought actually that, that the timing was quite well, that um, the IMF uh, always has its experts look at each member state country and then writes quite a comprehensive report, sort of a, similar to a school report. They tell you what you've done well, uh, they've tell you what you, they think you've done not so well and then give them advice for, for, for improvements. And that coincides, of course, nicely now with the upcoming election. So I thought uh, by taking a closer look at the IMF report, that will give sort of an independent view of how outsiders, experts in the field to do this for many, many countries view New Zealand. So that's why I decided to take a closer look at that 
report that has just been released. And like you, they've talked about positives and negatives. Absolutely. Um, there was nothing in there that we don't already know. Um, they commended uh, the government for a great job um, in quickly responding to the pandemic, locking the country down, and then being very quick with financial aids afterwards to keep the economy going again. And absolutely right, New Zealand did a great job. But when the government uh, started uh, to open the economy again and started to kickstart it, that's where things started to go wrong. And the IMF was actually quite clear that the prolonged lockdown of our borders actually contributed and put fuel on the fire of, of a heating economy um, simply by keeping the borders shut when all the other countries were already open for business that a created more of a supply chain shortage and, and secondly um, it created a labor shortage which all fueled the already heating economy and you've also pinpointed the concluding paragraph which doesn't sound too optimistic Absolutely. Um, uh, they pointed out that uh, given that inflation is still way too high and far away from target limits, we are sitting at 6%, we want to sit sort of between the 1.3% range, and they believe the OCR needs to stay up for longer. Uh, this, of course, dampens economic growth. It slows everything down. Um, given the cost of living crisis, the IMF actually believes um, we're heading for some potential instability. However, I don't quite uh, see it in, in, in such a pessimistic way. Um, as always, I've had a, have a more positive outlook. We've just heard that uh, in the second quarter, our economy grew by almost a percent. Now, that is, is not bad. We've heard that our technical recession uh, from Q1 wasn't actually a technical recession because they have um, changed the value to sort of 0% growth. So it wasn't a recession at all. So given that the economy is growing again, that the economy is getting used to the higher OCR, uh, I actually believe that New Zealand, it's not going to be an easy year, but um, it's not as uh, dark as sort of the IMF um, put in their final concluding statement. Why is it bad to focus too much on economic growth, having growth? Yeah, growth is, is good, but um, we seem to be obsessed. Everything needs to be 2 3% growth or, or we are not happy. But an economy that is growing steadily at like a percent is, is good. I prefer a steady slower growth than too much growth, overheating, and then the ups and downs. And um, if you go back sort of 10 years, New Zealand was this kind of economy. You remember when the term rock solid economy was, was Point. And this was actually the time where growth was not huge, but it was steady and was consistent. And I actually think we, we should be happy with 0.9% uh, growth for Q2. Um, and if we keep growing at such a similar rate, then I think that is, is exactly what the New Zealand economy needs. Putting your marking hat on, how do you think Labour did over the past three years? Oh, yeah, I... The ups and downs, uh, probably sort of a B minus, uh, that kind of range. I believe um, keeping the economy locked up for too long um, 
created damage um, and we still suffer from it. Uh, wage rises, uh, limitations in, in labour force has kept... It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Christoph Schumacher from Germany this week. So Christoph, you're looking at our election. The countdown is on. Yes, absolutely. And it's always a time. Of course, you are looking forward to what will happen uh, in the new years, but it's also a time to reflect and what has happened in the last uh, few years as well, because ultimately, if we decide to choose a party, we will want to see how good the incumbent was in order to give us an idea of whether we want to go along again for the same ride or whether we want to change. So I think election time is always important um, for looking backwards as well. And you've pinpointed the IMF report that's come out recently, doing a bit of a health check of the economy. Yeah, I thought actually that, that the timing was quite well, that um, the IMF uh, always has its experts look at each member state country and then writes quite a comprehensive report, sort of a, similar to a school report. They tell you what you've done well, uh, they've tell you what you, they think you've done not so well and then give them advice for, for, for improvements. And that coincides, of course, nicely now with the upcoming election. So I thought uh, by taking a closer look at the IMF report, that will give sort of an independent view of how outsiders, experts in the field who do this for many, many countries view New Zealand. So that's why I decided to take a closer look at that report that has just been released. Medicinal cannabis in the workplace is a grey area at the moment, although the ERA has made some comments in relation to cannabis and impairment, which also apply to the use of non-medicinal cannabis, particularly in workplaces with high thresholds for health and safety. With me to discuss this is Legal Vision Associate Ruby Mills. And Ruby, what do we know, if anything, about the use of medicinal cannabis if it's picked up in the workplace testing at the moment? Yes, you're correct, Dita. There isn't uh, much legislation or case law on this at the moment. And in terms of medicinal cannabis, obviously at the moment, um, it does need to be prescribed. So it is a you know a smaller number of people that it probably even applies to. Um, however, there has been a few cases um, that have touched on this. And in particular, there was uh, a case in the ERA last year uh, that touched on um, an employee who, who failed a random drug test um, he was then dismissed and he held that the, his dismissal was unjustified. Although uh, he wasn't on medicinal cannabis or had a prescription for it at the time, um, he did later receive one. The court did look into um, the consumption of medicinal cannabis in this case um, and, and touched on um, some interesting points around impairment and, and drugs at work and things like that. Um, so particularly, I think what was interesting around that was um, just the court Oh, sorry, the ERA in that in that case um, did did point out that just because it's legitimately prescribed, or although it wasn't in this case, it later was, doesn't mean that an employee um, can consume it, and doesn't mean that they're not going to be uh, impaired. So I guess the risk for an employer here is if there is a, a random result, um, random drug test that does reach a positive result, um, it's likely to breach their current um, drug and alcohol policy. And again, it's it's navigating employers how to deal with this in this case sort of touched on that uh, quite a bit around impairment and the fact that it still breached their policy and therefore um, you know the dismissal was held to be justified. 
I mean, aren't there drugs that people can take at the moment that might also impair them? For example, a very strong painkiller or something like that. I mean, is that treated the same way? Yes, and that's a, that's another interesting point. And I think it's one for employers that, that may need to be considered. I guess at the moment, most um, drug policies are, are very strict. And if, if something is picked up, um, you know, they usually are within their means to deem that misconduct or serious misconduct and I think it's an area that may need to change particularly with medicinal cannabis likely coming uh, becoming more popular um, and the same with other drugs there probably needs to be a policy in place and making sure that if there is a prescription drug whether it's cannabis or any other um, that it's communicated with employers and you know there needs to be a, a part of the policy that probably reflects these um you know, these drugs being used and then, you know, how we dealt with. So I think the key really would be for employers to make sure that there's an open line of communication with the employee, employees, um, talking to their doctor around what possible side effects there could be from any of these drugs, because ultimately it is, you know, the health and safety risk is, is the key still. It's the key, still, still the big focus for employers. Uh, so making sure they disclose it um, and depending on the type of job, you know, employers may have a stricter approach, but I think those open communications will probably lead to a change in policies and possibly a change from employers around, um, you know, what they require to be disclosed and, and what they, you know, deem as okay or um, safe to use while on a, in the workplace or on, you know, a safety sensitive, um, particularly a safety sensitive um, workplace or, or area. Medicinal cannabis, as far as I understand it, doesn't have the same kind of effects on the brain as, as others, as in it's, it wouldn't necessarily visually impair someone. So at the moment, if I do a physical job and I have a bad injury and I am prescribed medicinal cannabis, do I have to then go to the employee, employer and just make sure that I'm still okay to do my job? Is that how it works? I think it would be wise. The, the risk here really is, and it was highlighted in this case, that um, although he the employee didn't consume um, the marijuana through a, prescri a prescription, uh, it's still a possibility that it could show up in a, in a drug test. Um, so I guess it's 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 front-footing that and keeping those lines open and, and perhaps, you know, speaking to your manager around or, you know, your health and safety representative around what this means and then checking in with your doctor around any side effects or, um, you know, any risk of this, and if there are deemed to be none, which I think would be best to come from a, a health professional, that can be communicated, and then the employee and the employer can make sure that you know it's it's there's arrangements in place for that specific uh, employee to make sure that if there was a drug test, um, you know they're aware of why they're on it, what the effects may be, and if they're none, then it you know should help to protect both employers and employees um, from any injustice or any um, you know dismissals because of it. Right. Um, you talk about new health and safety rules that have come into effect. Yes, yep, there are some new health and safety rules. So on that note, um, I guess it just raises, again, um, the importance for employers to keep in mind um, the importance of health and safety. Um, and so a recent change was to the Health and Safety Representatives Committee Amendment Act. And basically what this means now that at the request of workers, um, a PCBU must initiate um an election of a health and safety representative. Um, so if that is is raised by workers, um, then they need to do that. And then secondly, I guess the other key change is that if five or more uh, request a committee, then the, the PCBU must establish this as soon as practicable um, once they receive this re request. And they've also removed um, the 
the requirement that this is in a high risk um, industry or, or sector um, as a factor for declining um, a health and safety representative or committee. So previously, um, a PCBU could decline this request from workers if they had less than 20 workers, I believe, yes. and if they weren't in the high-risk sector. Right. Um, and you mentioned the Amex case. Can you explain what that is and how that kind of feeds into what's what's happened? Yeah, so that was a case that has been throughout the media recently, and I guess for a number of reasons. One, um, you know, the, the severe impact it had on one of their employees and two, the personal uh, liability for some of those directors. Um, and again, the, the, the big fines that came out of it. So this was a, a case where um, an employee was left with a pretty significant brain injury as a result of a workplace um, sort of accident. Um, initially, the company did receive um, large fines. I think they were up around $316,000. Um, and um, this was actually reduced in the initial findings because of their good track record and remorse. However, what really came of it was unknown at the time. Um, a, a similar accident had occurred around a week earlier, uh, and then the employer actually made a report about this, but this was destroyed prior to WorkSafe investigating it. Um, and likely if you know this report had been around when that initial um, sanction had happened, it's likely that they would have been higher fines. Um, so since then, uh, two, I believe it was uh, one of the directors and possibly the health and safety manager had both actually been sentenced to to jail um, for their partaking in this. And I believe one was for perverting the course of justice and then the other for a false statement. So I guess this just really emphasises the importance of those health and safety um, at work duties and obligations. And, you know, it, it, it really highlights that there can be prosecutions that result in you know, individual imprisonment in addition to those company fines, which, um, you know, has a really serious impact for employers and something to keep in mind. Ruby, thank you so much. No worries. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.